Assalamu alaikum friends and welcome to a Muslim Mum podcast. Inshallah, I hope you're all well. Today's podcast is a Q&A with Dr. Shadi Al-Masri. This was an interview conducted by the Thinking Muslim podcast. Um, that actually belongs to my husband. He, he's been doing that for over a year. And the questions that they go through are, Islamically, how should we be viewing certain things such as, you know, the... Um, uh, Jummah not being um, done in in mosques. What what's the reason behind that? And and just giving a lot of evidences regarding questions that many of us have been you know thinking about and wondering. And I thought it would be really good to just share that with you. Inshallah, I really hope you enjoy it. The current coronavirus pandemic has taken the world by surprise. As much of the West and East are experiencing lockdowns, the vocabulary of social distancing and quarantines have entered our vocabulary. As governments around the world move from one crisis to another, the absence of planning and preparation becomes evident day by day. In Britain, for example, the government of Boris Johnson has shown a shocking lack of planning, leading to a growing death toll. And the same can be said about Trump's America. As we hunker down and wait in anticipation for a breakthrough, we inevitably begin to think about our mortality and whether we have within us the ability to deal with the crisis. In the coming weeks, we are going to be exploring the COVID-19 crisis. We're going to be looking at questions to do with human nature, what the past weeks have revealed about our societies, the role of good government in securing our well-being and how the crisis may herald a post-coronavirus world order. I am going to be in conversation with guests from around the world, scholars, academics and public health professionals to make sense of this new world. Today I invite back onto our show Dr Shadi Al-Masri, an imam and Islamic scholar from the United States. The Muslim community has faced a series of questions in the past weeks, and I put them to Dr. Al-Masri. Dr. Shadi, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, and welcome back to the Thinking Muslim podcast. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Alhamdulillah, rabbil alameen. And how are, how's the Muslim community there in, in America? Well, alhamdulillah, I think everyone's uh, making do in, in the best way possible, and uh, um People are talking about their habits, so in a in a way that's sort of bringing people together, uh, away from probably more divisive discussions. And that's the, one of the benefits of a virus is that it's not a uh, something that you know it's something that we all have in common in the sense that it's out of everyone's control. It's nobody's doing, and we end up um, having some unique things to discuss, which is basically how we're handling the quarantine. And a lot of people are online together now because there's nothing else to do. So you go online and WhatsApp, I think is booming and Zoom, I think are having more traffic than ever before. So, um, you know, there's a, always some silver lining, I guess you could say. That's right. And I, are you finding that you're, um, you're inter- interacting actually much more with people because people have much more time in their hands at the moment? Yeah, I, well, the, the, my favorite thing is being able to, to have my family around and at home. Uh, I like that. I uh, like that we're praying Jama'ah. Uh, every prayer together. Uh, that's nice. I mean, uh, so those are things that never happened before. The annoying, uh, horrific, horrible morning rit- rit- uh, ritual, you know, uh, you know, morning ritual that we used to do, uh, which is wake up, every alarm start going off at 5.45 a.m., which is probably too early for kids anyway, but they it goes off. And it's basically an annoying headache for an hour and, you know, 30 minutes or so until they all out of the house at 7:20. Uh, that's usually the time that I get to spend with them. And then, uh, but that I, I'd much rather skip that and just be with them through the, throughout the day. Also the annoying pickup, uh, you know, uh, if anyone who, you know, has kids at school, you got to go pick them up. That's always annoying. So uh, I don't mind having those things replaced. I think they're also better rested. They're in better moods. So there are a lot of positive silver linings. And, and I am uh, getting to see them a lot more, as most families are, maybe too much. 
uh, online, yeah, I'm with the community now, and some certain people have shown to need or benefit from what we're doing, which is the community updates every evening at the uh, MBIC or New Brunswick Islamic Center YouTube channel. And some people have proven that they need it or like it more than um, uh, expected. So we are seeing them online all the time. If they, it, I think online meetings do count for something. And I would probably put it as for every online exchange is probably uh, 10, 10 online exchanges may be worth a five minute personal exchange, probably less, right? Maybe a 60 second uh, personal exchange. So uh, that's just like I'm throwing out a number, but, uh, but yeah, there is a lot of online stuff going on. So I've invited you on my show, Dr. Shadi, really to shed some light on some common questions that Muslims have been asking over these past few weeks. Uh, I suppose, I mean, it's a question. Uh, the first question really is what um, uh, a number of people have been speaking about, and that's uh, the so-called cancellation of Salatul Jummah. I mean, I think we see in large parts of the world, especially the Western world, that the Friday prayer is no longer taking place. Now, uh, I appreciate that um, uh, the way this virus spreads is it can spread asymptomatically. and um, uh, but, but, but at the same time, um, many of us uh, or many of our community are somewhat uncomfortable with not attending this one communal prayer, which really is the highlight of, of our week. So, so, so how do we uh, deal with this tension over... Uh, in our minds, really, over the cancellation of Salatul Jummah. Yeah, I mean, you, it, it's it's funny that how how it became a thing. But you know, Jummah can be cancelled for a lot less than this. You know, Jummah can be called off, and you can basically tell people stay in your homes for things like icy roads. Where if there's any chance that people, if there's a reasonable chance, I should say, that people will get uh, uh, harmed by going out, then at that point, the, the obligation is lifted. Okay. So at that point, you know, people should uh, uh, not be surprised that Juma is canceled. I think just the wording Juma is canceled is scary to people, which is understandable, right? Uh, but the actual reality of things is that, you know, it could be, uh, maybe we should say is that Dhuhr is replacing Juma. That's the better wording that makes you feel that you're not really like uh you know uh canceling jummah is just not nice not a nice word to you not a nice uh phrase it sounds like we're changing our dean or something like that or we're losing something you know so yeah i mean i think most sensible scholars who understand the science and understand the hukum shari'i would um, would concur with your view that um, there is great harm in large numbers of people gathering together and that, that that seems to be the scientific consensus and definitely the consensus amongst uh, Muslims who are experts in in this issue uh, tell me where does where do the madahib stand on praying salatul juma in your own home say with your family or with your uh, i suppose you, you can only be really with your family because of social exclusion but where does uh, where do the schools of thought stand on this issue? No, I believe that uh, all of them that have except one exception for the Hanafis uh, hold that it must be in a public space. It's not Juma if it's not in a public space. So, you know, uh, I, to me, it's either Dhuhr or it's Juma because I mean, okay, let's say you do it in your home and then you forgot to tell one of your neighbors down the street, you know, I mean, so is he doing his obligation or not? Like, what's going on here, you know? So I, the way I look at it is that, you know, um, you're either doing Juma or you're not doing Juma. So I, I don't like the mixing around and coming in the middle. And I think those are more confusing than anything else. Now, we know that when we read Quran and when we look at the stories of the previous uh, prophets, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala used uh, phenomenon like this, you know, plagues and natural phenomenon to punish communities who rebelled against uh, his subhanahu wa ta'ala's uh, might, might and rebelled against his authority. Um, and so um, many of us have, have surmised that uh, this uh, pandemic is a punishment from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now, 
how how can we how do we view this how how should we contextualize the coronavirus and and um, uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's wrath well um the idea of something being a punishment from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is a big deal to talk about because it's basically called it's well, something we might call a ta'alli ala Allah or speaking on behalf of Allah right and that's actually something that's not a smart thing to do it's something that people should take seriously and not just you know throw things out there so the first thing that people um, if they say that the plague is being sent as a punishment from Allah or any any viral infection that spreads i'm using the word plague to mean any infection that spreads far and wide and we can't control it and we have no cure for it well one of the things i would say to that is that the Prophet, peace be upon him, specifically addressed this plagues, al-waba, the Arabic for it being al-waba. And he said that plague used to be a means of punishment that Allah, by which Allah destroyed cities. And why would someone say, why would Allah destroy a city? I mean, why, why would you do that? Well, that's coming from a perspective of a type of uh, humanistic perspective where the human being is the greatest thing on the earth. No. The human being, when he acts correctly, when he acts well, when he does good, is uh, the greatest thing, uh, creation of Allah, subhanahu, the greatest species of Allah's creation. But when a human being uh, doesn't act that way and he becomes a source of harm for the rest of human beings. And so certain people were sent prophets who warned them about their behavior and they didn't obey them. And at that point, they become a... Um, a source of harm they become a uh, an expense for, or, or they become a, a you know a source of danger for the rest of human beings and they're eliminated right when you have a a limb that can poison the rest of the body you eliminate that limb and that's why nations used to be destroyed it's not something we like but that's the reality of things and that one of the means by which nations were destroyed was through plagues and so that a people would just die all at once and without time for people to bury each other or, you know, leave a marker or make mention of what happened. Uh, so that's the one thing. Uh, secondly, is the idea that the Prophet continued this hadith by saying that Allah Ta'ala has made this a rahmah for my ummah, okay, for the believers. So if a Muslim thinks that plague, when it strikes the believers is a punishment? The answer is no. The prophet actually said the exact opposite of that. He said it is a mercy, right? It is a way of expiation. The prophet said in another hadith that any mu'min who learns of a plague and does not leave his location nor enters into that location, into a city. Let's say you, you got the plague and you're about to enter your city. No, you shouldn't enter your city. Okay, do not enter your city. Stay out of your city. Or you have the plague and you wanted to leave your city, you shouldn't. You should stay in your city. That's number one. Number two, he had sabr. He was patient. Number three, he, di uh, he died in that plague. Okay. So what happens now? What happens now is that the person is uh, it dies the death of a shaheed. Prophet said that person dies the death of a martyr or of a shaheed. So, I mean, how great is that? So for people to think negatively in that respect is not correct. Uh, another aspect is that all trials and tribulations, uh, or no trial, I should say, no trials and tribulations should be seen, uh, if they come externally to us, should ever be seen as um, one way or the other. Rather, it's how you react to it. So if you react to anything, any event, in a way that you disobey Allah, so you should know that that's a punishment. If you react to Allah Ta'ala in any way that you are just being patient, then in that case, you are, um, uh, your, your sins are being expiated, and that's it. Okay, So that's a good thing. That's a very good thing. So you're just being patient, your sins are expiated. If you react in such a way where you improve, your state improves, your spiritual state improves, you're, you're, you're doing better now, then you should view that thing as that event, that external event, as an increase in your rank, 
And therefore, whether it's something good, bad, or otherwise, how you react indicates what that thing is. Okay. So plague or even getting a raise, you know, quite the opposite of a plague, having a baby. How you react indicates a lot. It indicates to you whether it's a punishment, a purification, or an elevation of your rank. Now, you mentioned there that uh, a person who dies of a, uh, a communicable disease like the plague will die of uh, a shaheed. Mm-hmm. Um, now, uh, is that the shaheed uh, that we, we know about, right? The shaheed who, who dies on the battlefield in a just war and, and mm-hmm. um, uh, he has a, a rank above everyone else and um, he enters the Jannah um, without uh without accountability and do do those conditions that apply to uh the lofty status of a of a shaheed that we we're we're most aware of would that apply to the shaheed from a from a plague for example that's a good question there are two types of shaheeds there is shaheed dunya and shaheed dunya wal akhirah okay uh, uh, sorry, I should say Shahidu dunya wal akhirah and there's Shahidu al akhirah. So there is a Shahid who, in this life, we can say he died a Shahid. And of course, in the akhirah, he is a Shahid as well. Uh, he has the reward of being a Shahid. Now, the other one is the one who is a Shahid only from the aspect of the afterlife. And what do we mean by that? We mean by that he's not treated as a martyr in terms of his burial. So the person who drowns, let's say, for example, the person who dies in a demolition, such as a building falls on him, or a car crash, for example, okay, or uh, something like that. Uh, The person who is burned to death, the person who dies in a plague, the person who dies, really the person who dies in a plague is anyone who dies because of internal bodily causes, such as, any organ inside of his body bursts or causes poison, poisons him to death or something like that. Um, these are all, anyone who dies protecting his wealth and his life. These are all categories of people. That death is the death of a martyr in that they get the reward of the martyr. However, in this world, they are buried like anyone else. They're given a, uh, a, a ghusl, they're washed and buried like anyone else, right? Whereas the martyr of the battlefield is, uh, is buried and preyed upon, but he's not washed, he's not wrapped or anything like that. So that's basically the difference uh, between those two types of martyrs. And how about the question uh, that a lot of people ask, um, and that is that uh, why, if Allah wills everything, uh, why should we... Uh, isolate ourselves what's with this quarantine idea um if we're going to go out and get it or if we're going to stay at home and get it it's the will of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and so why take precautions um surely one should be uh, far more courageous about uh this situation and um uh, and expose ourselves because if if we're going to die from it you know our ajal is from allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and we can't extended by a a a single uh, a single minute right correct uh that's why um the the answer to that question is that we actually um uh, do it out of obedience of allah ta'ala in two commands that he gave one is specific and one is general the first general command is that all over quran and hadith there are mentions of taking advantage and acting upon asbab or precautions, okay? And that's a command, right? You have to do that. So much so that you may say that your reliance upon Allah is invalid until you have taken all precautions possible, right? Um, So that's the first thing. So that's a general command that you can find so many textual proofs for that. So person has to take precautions. It's obligatory. It is the way of the Prophet Secondly, the Prophet specifically spoke about quarantine. And he said that when a plague strikes, then no one should enter the city and no one should leave it. So we have a general and a specific command. The general command can change. So, for example, you learn that, you know, uh, ghee is not healthy for you. At some point, people learn that we used to burn off 
the butter that we eat uh, by moving around. And then the industrial era brought us more sedentary lives and we don't move around, but our diet stayed the same, right? And nobody thought that, you know, that there's a problem in that at some point. You might, people might think that that's crazy. How could people think that? Yeah, that's, that's what was the thinking at a certain uh, part of the 20, early 20th century, that the farmer's diet was the main way that people ate, even if they moved out to the cities and didn't move around as much. So it, we've come to learn that this is terrible for you. So you're obligated at that point to take action, okay? Uh, if you refuse to listen to what the professionals of an industry or a field tell you, and then you get a heart attack, you cannot say now, I just rely upon Allah, right? It's invalid. Why? Because Allah Ta'ala, if you will want to rely upon him, he sent you messages and he sent you professionals and he sent you experts, right? And Allah calls them in the Quran, Ahlu Dhikr. Ahlu dhikr, the word dhikr means people who do something every day. In other words, people who are repeating something daily. Okay? And uh, when they repeat something daily, then they become the experts in that field. And you, sh you, you should, you're obligated to give them an ear and consider what they're saying and act upon it. So this uh, concept, I don't know why all of a sudden people got so pious and thinking they're pious uh, with the corona. I think it's people like to stand out, right? Um, because it's again, I came across many people who said to me, uh, like I, w I happened to be in a little masjid area, the staff, and a man came and he said, I said, are we going to separate? Like we should pray like a couple feet away from each other. He said, oh, just rely upon Allah. I was like, subhanAllah, that's why you're not the teacher here because you're ignorant, right? <laughs> because you're really jahid because that's actually not the sunnah. The sunnah is take all precautions. Whenever you look at, look at the Ottoman Empire, look at any, because that's, we have so much records, so many records about them. Um, the Ottoman Empire, these people were, it's like a completely modern bureaucracy. Numbers were, things were calculated, things were planned, everything was, and that's why they had success. They didn't just have success because they were on the right aqidah and right deen and everything like that. A lot of other nations were too, right? A lot of people a lot of parties and a lot of groups and tribes were upon the right deen. Why did uh, they not receive that success? Because these Ottomans were people who took worldly realities into consideration. And I'm all, I'm all about that. Training, planning, preparing, right? Um, after you've done all that and you still fall short, well, I should say, after you've done all that, whether you're successful or not, you put your whole fate in Allah's hands. As the Prophet ﷺ, he took all the precautions. Uh, and then the night before the Battle of Badr, he spent begging Allah Ta'ala for victory, praying and weeping. And he's doing that to teach us. We take Asbab, but we don't believe in them in the sense that we don't believe that they're the cause of our victory. And in early Islamic history, did Muslim societies suffer from the plague or other communicable diseases? And how, how did they deal with these uh, diseases when they encountered them? Well, there was a plague called um, a, a plague in uh, in um, uh, in Palestine. And there was a city there that got struck. And it was a city where one of the companions was going to Abu Ubaid ibn Jarrah was going to, to, to govern and he was, it's one of the cities that he was going to uh, from which he was, you know, he was governing or he was doing certain jobs for Sayyidina Umar. And Sayyidina Umar and him were going there. And then they heard of the plague. And Sayyidina Umar said, well, we, we ha we're going to turn back. And then he says, Abu Ubaidah says to Umar, min Are we fleeing from the decree of Allah? And Sayyidina Umar said, if I only I had heard this from somebody else besides you. Right. You're too knowledgeable to make that blunder or that error all right, in logic. And he said, min ila We flee from the will of Allah to the will of Allah. Right? And likewise, a man, uh, Omar, uh, a man had once committed a crime and Omar said, come because you're going to get a couple lashes for this. And the man decided to be smart. And he said, do you lash me for something that Allah willed? He said, yes, and Allah also willed that I lash you. Right. So uh, why do you only see that that which is bad is the qadr of Allah? Like, you notice that that mistake in people's logic. 
why would people only, you know, uh, uh, consider that which was, you know, a negative to be the Qadr of Allah? Why not also consider that precaution is also the Qadr of Allah, right? And I have people like, I mean, for example, you take like security cameras or something, right? Um, when you have security cameras and stuff, people sometimes think, well, why don't you just trust in the ghaib? You know, that there's ghaib, and why don't you just trust in, in Allah Ta'ala regarding that? I'm thinking to myself, you know, why don't you attribute the camera as also a sign from Allah too? That Allah gave you this, maybe you're going to avert a massive disaster in the future, right? Maybe it's going to be the cause of averting, you know, a disaster. So I actually, uh, you know, it's, it's just really strange logic uh, for people to only view the negative as Qadar Allah. I actually view the positive. If I, uh, you know, something like security cameras all around the, a property is something where, you know, maybe it's the Qadr of Allah that you, you thought about it or seen an advertisement about it or that it exists, you know, for you to take advantage of. Why don't you consider that to be Qadr of Allah too? So, you know, it's a logic that I, uh, it's completely flawed and it's actually unfortunate um, to see and people should really rectify it real fast because this is what's called fatalism and it's this idea that, you know, just leave everything and turn to Allah, leave everything. And, and it's just, to me, it's silly and, and it's a cause of failure. I guarantee you no successful people think about this. Now, um, it seems to me that um, we live in a world where, um, where trust in politicians and experts uh, is at an all-time low, really. And um, when this uh, coronavirus came about, uh, many experts were suggesting that, you know, we need to uh, take the advice seriously. But 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 generally, everyone, you know, uh, took a very, um, a very minimal approach, I suppose, to the public health messages that were coming out and, and uh, the, the types of um, uh, precautions we were told to take. And I suppose that there's a strain in, in the Muslim community that would, would add to that and say, look, these are non-Muslims and they were untrustworthy when it came to, I don't know, expert opinion on weapons of mass destruction in the Iraq war or, you know, and so, you know, they've got track record of, of over-exaggerating uh, issues for political ends. And um, and as a result, the messages that have that have come our way you know our community in particular but 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 generally the society as well have 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 um uh taken those messages with a a pinch of salt um i mean how should we take these public health messages is there a like a, an islamic um perspective on how we should take these expert messages because you have to admit you know they've been wrong before and and and, and there are lots of confused signals yeah. that come uh from the top well, my opinion, um, it's a good question. And my opinion on why everyone moves so slow on this uh, coronavirus is has nothing necessarily to do with, it has something to do with something very, uh, very much more basic and, and primal in the human being. This is my opinion. My opinion is that there was no gruesome imagery associated with coronavirus. First of all, the word doesn't even sound dangerous right? It sounds like something nice, right? I mean, there are drinks named Corona, right? I mean, they're alcoholic, but I mean, just the point, the point being that marketing companies have used the word Corona. It sounds like, like an Italian meal or something, right? Or a restaurant or a vacation city or something like that. So it doesn't sound alarming. Okay. That's the first thing. Secondly, there were no visuals. If you think about it, was there any visual associated with coronavirus? Whereas uh, Ebola was something that had visuals, right? Ebola was something that had scary visuals, right? And I'll tell you right now, I'm far more scared of Ebola than Corona, right? Uh, so the marketing of Corona is perfect for a pandemic. And the marketing of Ebola is actually perfect for a, 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 a stopped pandemic, epidemic, right? Uh, if you want to stop an epidemic, get attention to it, make it vicious, make it scary, the whole world will stop it real fast, right? But if you want it to seep into and trickle down into the world, then give it a non-alarming name, don't give it any visuals, and nobody's going to take it seriously, 
right? And that's exactly what I believe happened. So it's more of a, uh, from a, a persuasion element, there was nothing, I've, I've seen it, I'm on the news every day. I mean, in terms of following the news every day, I've seen it from way back and I've heard people talk about it. Nothing moved me to, to read further, to examine further. It was uh, not scary enough. In, in itself, there was nothing associated with it. Today, until today, is there anything different in, in a corona patient? Does he look any different? He's not bleeding out of his eye sockets. He's bleeding out of his ears. No. So a lot of people um, think of pandemics and plagues and epidemics in those scary terms, right? So that's the first thing. And that's why I think that everyone being slow, I mean, I would sort of give them a pass on that because I don't think anyone was really worried about it in the beginning. Secondly, the reason that people are suspicious is because they know that there's a certain reality of life that's going to happen. And that reality of life is that the powers that be, they never receive a situation external to themselves, except that they have the resources to find a way to benefit from that situation faster no, that's a, that's a very, very interesting point. Actually, you mentioned something about human nature there. And um, the government in, in the UK has, um, uh, have for the past probably two weeks, have been sending out these educational messages. You know, it started with wash, wash your hands and then social distancing came in. And so there were a number of um, messages they were sending out. And, and the government uh, wanted to rely on people's sense of rationality you know if we can uh if we can convince the population to act and behave in a particular way the population will naturally incline towards the good now the problem for the government has been in in the uk context is no one took a blind bit of notice right um and so uh, there was a message sent out uh late last week to say look you know if you don't need to go out don't go out right uh, now in Britain it was a particularly sunny weekend, and and as you know, if yeah. you know about British weather, that's, that's quite that's a, a rarity. It's a holiday, yeah. <laughs> so uh, the millions of people, I'm we're, we're saying, you know, we're, we're talking about millions of people went to the coast and went to the cities, and and you know the message just didn't work, right? And it it then took the government to to give a very unequivocal: here is you can't go out, and here's the only reason why you go out for people to take to take notice and um i think that that really struck a or questioned sort of a whole concept of of human behavior and human nature and how human beings respond in crises um i, I don't know what you know I, I suppose the question i'm asking is you know um it, it's really about how do human beings um process uh information and how do they act en masse and it seems to me that the Chinese way of just telling uh, a people to do something and to have the weight of the law behind you, you know, is a is a far in a in a in a in a compressed situation like this is is a far uh, more successful method than to just teach people and to nudge them along. Yeah, I think that uh, um, you know the masses. I don't know why the West does have this affinity and this love for the people and the masses as if they can do no wrong. Right. I think that's actually a big mistake and it's, it's not smart at all. I think that um, the people and the masses, et cetera, it's something that, you know, they're not go they need to be guided by experts in certain fields. Okay. Uh, from the one aspect uh, where the people and the masses matter is that their well being should be the number one concern of governments and rulers. Right. That's the first thing. Sayyidina Omar was once asked, you know, uh, why don't you revamp the masjid and, and now you have so much money, why don't we rebuild the masjid and make it beautiful? And the Prophet uh, and Sayyidina Omar said, the stomachs of the poor are more important to me, right? So from, the, from that aspect, the idea of the masses is more important uh, or the people is, is, is at the highest uh, level of, of priority. But for them to be the decision makers on matters where we're not trained, Right? We have no knowledge of this stuff. That it makes no sense to me at all. Right? So it makes no sense. So uh, that's something where that's got to be completely 
you know, it's got to be completely looked at it a second time. But then again, here's the problem. Well, who are we going to trust, right? Uh, who are we going to trust to give us orders? And that's where the West, at least in America, we really don't like anyone giving us orders, right? And that's why they have to use language of encouragement, delicate language, right? Really delicate uh, language in that manner because, um, uh, you know, we, like, we, we don't like anyone telling us what to do, even if it's for our own benefit. So we're going to have that debate. And the West is going to be, I think, historically has been more in favor of the individual and the East more in favor of the, community, the society. So the East will favor, I think, a more uh, authoritative approach whereas the West will uh, be more individual-based. Uh, now, Dr. Shadi, I don't know about you, but um, I get... Uh, all my friends have become experts, and um, I, I receive uh, WhatsApp messages on a daily basis from from yeah. either them or, or from their friends who, who happen to be doctors who've got cures yeah. and causes uh, mm-hmm. and uh, explanations mm-hmm. behind uh, the coronavirus and... Uh, I've heard it all, actually, in the last couple of weeks. Now, yeah. uh, is there an Islamic duty to verify uh, these sorts of messages before we forward them on? I definitely think so. I mean, especially if your people are actually listening to what you have to say, then um, it's probably one cut under, right under, um, one cut right under religious uh, the messages because religious messages are uh you know there's heaven and hell involved right whereas but this is something that nonetheless still requires people to um uh to to verify what they're saying if it's going to affect people's behavior if it's going to make them scared they have to verify mm-hmm. so i think that uh i don't i think that this has revealed for a lot of people that they don't know the concept of verification and I literally have seen people sending messages that were 110% fake news, but sending it as if it was, and I was duped on one thing too, right? Uh, a friend of mine from New York sent me a picture of, um, you know, a, a, a big cement build room with, with hospital beds in it. And he said, this is the Javits Center, right? And they're transformed it into a hospital, hospice, hospital type of space. So I just passed that along thinking that, well, he's an educated man from New York, so he's not going to be duped by it. What, he, what, the, what the article actually said, and he misread, was that it was that this, is, this was in another country, Spain, I think hmm. it was, and that Javits Center was thinking to do something similar right. to it, right? So he just scanned it real quick and boom, Javits Center. And he saw the picture and he thought that was it right there. So that type of, uh, that's what fake news actually is. It's usually an innocent mistake, but people actually have to become very savvy in discerning and separating between what actually happened and, uh, uh, and what's being reported. You know, and, and most, in most cases, fake news is a misread of something or it's a clip out of context, right? A, like an audio or a video clip taken out of context. Or it's a partial truth. So like a paragraph or a, or a clip. That's sort of similar to uh, out of context, but uh, only half of the truth is mentioned. Mm-hmm. And then much more rare is the actual intentional attempt to uh, distort the truth. That's much more rare. That takes us a little bit... Uh, of conniving and evil for people to do. But um, those are the four types of fake news that people are going to get. And there's so much fake news going around. I think edu- f- fake f- of fake news needs to be taught these days, right? So that people don't get alarmed. I think know? that's a course for you, uh, Dr. Shadi. Yeah, I mean, maybe we could do it as a course. I mean, one of the first things that I got was a message, an audio message that says, hi, I'm so-and-so, my... Um, you know, my my husband, he came to me and he told me something and I need to tell you, right? And it's he, he works for the, the army and the army's getting ready and they're going to be hitting the streets. And, you know, I just want to let you guys know. And that this is a leaked message, right? <laughs> so, so, you know, that's something that probably maybe someone as a prank did it. They were, they were good at it, right? 
uh, how do how am I supposed to know if that's real or not? You know, um, uh, in in Britain, and I'm sure it's it's happened also in the United States when when it did get serious. Um, uh, the first thing um, most people did is they they went to the shops and began to stockpile. Uh, large quantities of food and and uh, and items, right? And um, you, you've seen the pictures, and I'm sure it's been shared around. And um, um, uh, and and that's that's created a a massive shortage for um, because these supply chains are so uh, are so finely tuned. Uh, they store nothing; nothing is warehoused anymore. And and so we've had shortages of 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 a number of products over the last uh, week or so. But also there is a sinister side. I mean, I suppose that's human nature, right? People panic, but there's a sinister side. People are uh, are um, amassing large amounts of stock so they can sell it on eBay or on on Amazon at a very high high cost uh, and make make a handsome profit uh, when when there is a shortage. I mean, what is Islamic guidance on on this hoarding and stockpiling? Um... If it's to the detriment of people, to the degree that it's to the detriment of people, it's forbidden. So when it comes to matters that are, for example, uh, uh, requ- uh, necessities of life, it's completely prohibited, right? So you cannot hoard up, um, you know, f- sugar, bread, things like that. You can't hoard that up ever, uh, much less in a time of need like this. If you want to, you can hoard up anything else that is not of dire need for people or even, you know, regular need for people and that's just speculate and you could just sit on it until the price goes up you know you want to do that with you know a certain type of motorcycle or a certain type of computer uh that's fine but uh in terms of our context today i'm actually a big believer in planning and so i like to have you know certain you know uh, my needs there uh then when i rely on allah i'll rely on allah having done my part right um but if it's to the detriment of people and if it's based out of actual fear of uh, a type of, you know, this, this peop, sometimes people are gripped by this fear that is not appropriate for a moment to have. It's not appropriate for a moment to have that. So if it's, the, if it's based out of, you know, just uh, prep, uh, planning and preparing, fine. But if it's based out of being gripped by fear, then I would say buy your stuff what you need, but don't be gripped by fear. There is a law, subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's unbelievable how... Uh, you know, scared people can become, there's a degree of limit if you believe in Allah and, uh, you know, have some tawakkul, then um, you shouldn't, that that fear shouldn't be so gripping. Um, So again, hoarding is all about harm. If it's going to harm people, let me leave some stuff for other people. That's how it's common sense, right? You're going to go and you, you, you know, take all the toilet paper, which I think it's amazing how Allah has made this such modern people, and now our obsession is now with wiping the najasa off of us. You know, that's our obsession now. That's what we're, we've been reduced to. This quickly? I was like, wow, we really are fragile uh, creatures and living in a fragile economy, in a fragile world. Uh, everything is fragile. Our bodies are fragile. Uh, that we're now sort of worried now that if, um, you know, if we're going to have toilet paper to wipe ourselves. Now we we know that in Islam we have duties to our neighbors and to our community, um, uh, and uh, you know we we're now most of us are in some form of quarantine or in some form of isolation, and and uh, that makes it uh, difficult in some respects because you're caring for yourself and you're concerned about you know yourself and and you know you you would not like to catch this. Uh, this illness um, but what responsibilities do we have to uh, those around us in in these trying times uh, i think that uh, we should take advantage of these things anytime that there is a trial i think that uh the best thing to do the best source of guidance is to see what the people around us need and the people who are able to facilitate those needs as much as possible Right. Those are the people who are going to come out on top from a spiritual or from the perspective, you know, of our hisab and and who we are and also direction and also a lot of other things. When there's a crisis, if you're busy helping other people, you're on the side of Allah like a shaheed almost like you're a battle. You're a warrior. If you're a crisis and you're busy seeing like what is the what is firstly I need. Number two, my family. Number three, the neighborhood. 
number four, the community. That's the order. Because you know, there, there's this um, uh, activists today, oftentimes their families are in shambles, right? They care so much about fixing society. They haven't even, you know, fixed up their own households, right? Their household, they're oftentimes sometimes getting divorced even, right? So their, home, their homes are a mess. So they're really not activists. They're chasing fame. A true activist, forget that word, but amal for us has a triage that we're obligated to observe, okay? Number one, it's yourself. Number two, it's your immediate household. Number three, it's your neighborhood, you know, your street and your locality. If you don't have the ability to handle that stuff, you know, then why should, you know, uh, uh, then what are you doing? So the issue of helping other people also gives us direction, purpose, and gives us, we learn something new too. Because you're going to end up learning what is needed, you know. You end up learning a new skill. Let me learn this skill so I can help people. Let me delve into something I've never delved into, you know, to help people. So I think that these, um, the idea of helping other people should rise to a higher priority than just helping myself. And, uh, you know, at that point, you, a person will see the great, you know, benefits that come uh, from helping other people. Now, lastly, Dr. Shadi, um, it seems to me that um, the the precondition or the predilection, I suppose, of a believer is that he uh, turns an adversity into an advantage. And um, we're in a in a situation and, and, you know, we're hunkering down now. And it, as you said, it may be many months before we're able to uh, really, uh, you know, return back to, to normalcy. Um, in this period, how should a believer spend their time? What what should be their priorities? How should they organize their time? Um, you know what what should we expect to uh, expect in ourselves? Say three months down the line, when inshallah ta'ala this is over. Well, the first state that people should be doing is they should be looking at the state of their minds before they look at what their body is doing, and the state of your mind should be a state of shukr. Because if you look at a lot of times, one hardship is meant to, to, to avoid another one. You think of it, how, how do you think the people in Noah's Ark felt? Right? I mean, you're, what, you're, you're complaining that you're in a home. You can still go out in the street. You can still go shopping. You can still sit on a couch. You can still sleep in a bed. You can still, you know, you have TV. You have Netflix. You have all these things. What the heck are you complaining about? You know, that's, that's my thing, right? And, and, and whining and complaining is a mindset more than anything else. You can be in a jail and you don't whine and complain, right? Because it's a mindset. Now, you also have to take certain actions into consideration. So one of the things, what are the things that are at stake that could really make us miserable by staying put? And set aside security and supply chain, we talked about that already, right? Um, I'm looking at uh, weight gain, lethargy, uh, bad sleep habits, bad eating habits, okay? And we're looking at, you know, waste of time. We're looking at dirtiness, home in which people are just sitting there all day. It's going to get dirty. So what I've said in my community updates, I said the first thing people got to do, number one, is you got to clean the house twice a day. There's going to be a morning routine and there's going to be an evening routine or an afternoon routine in which the house is cleaned. So what we started to do is first thing in the morning, there's a cleaning routine. Everyone's got to clean their area. Number two, afternoon when the kids finish their, their schooling on the computer and they got snacks everywhere and computers and paper. Yeah, it's all got to get cleaned. I, 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 I got to see that, you know, when, if I walk in, I, I don't want to know that there's anything was happening here, right? All the computers got to be put away. The food's got to be put away. Nothing is sitting around. And I'm telling you, when you do that, it renews the whole house. Right? It's as if the whole house is it's like is a new feeling upon everyone as soon as they do that. Second thing I said is you got to get dressed for the occasion. If you're going to school, I want you dressing in pants. I don't want anyone coming down in sweatpants. Definitely not PJs. I mean, some people are taking the computer to their beds because I'm teaching too, right? And I'm seeing on Zoom, this is disgusting. Uh, each kid has a set, a, an area. That's where your school area is. Right? I don't want to see you roaming around, having class everywhere. No, you have one area. 
And that's areas what you're responsible for. So cleanliness and getting dressed and then the sleeping habits. And that's actually hard for me because I actually have to do the community updates late and I don't feel like, you know, I feel like unwinding a little bit afterwards. Um, uh, because even though it's just an hour, it does take some prep and a little bit of, uh, you know, uh, it's effort, but sleeping habits is very important. If you fall into the sleeping habit of uh, staying up really late and then sleeping in, you're going to be in a miserable mood. And then the fourth thing is, uh, exercise. Most people get cabin fever. They get upset. They get, you know, out of shape. They get, um, antsy at night because they're not tired. Like nothing made them tired. They're pent up. So People should take walks. People should jog. People should get on treadmills. Buy a treadmill, right? Uh, buy an exercise bike, okay? You know, buy these things. Get on these things. Exhaust yourself. If you're going to watch, people are watching TV, right? At least get on a machine and walk, well, exhaust yourself, right? So make yourself tired so that at nighttime, you know, you felt like some energy has been used. Do some push-ups. So we should be healthy. We should be strong-bodied. And this is not something that, should just be a group of us who are into fitness or doing this. No, everyone should do this. We, we, do we want an Ummah that's like weak or strong, right? We want an Ummah that's strong. So we all have to be strong, not just some of us, not just two of us, you know, or a small group of people who are into fitness. It really has been uh, interesting as always. And uh, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala keep you and uh, the Muslim community very mm-hmm. safe and uh, inshallah ta'ala we we hope that um uh something good comes from this and um yes uh we can be stronger as a result inshallah amen amen inshallah jazakallah jazakallah and uh just a quick message to our listeners stay safe and do obey the um the quarantines or the lockdowns in your area and uh, may allah subhanahu wa ta'ala keep you and your family safe keep us in your du'as Look out for future podcasts on uh, this theme on COVID-19 and its societal and international implications. But from me for now, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.